Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Hey, everybody. Get ready for something that's creepy. Sort of creepy. Supernatural, maybe. Supernatural. We are talking today, we're calling this episode, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, it's like really intense. Uh, it, it can get really intense, but um, we're talking about some aliens, maybe some UFOs, some potential aliens. Yes. So I will admit that we have a wine called Casual Encounters, which I think actually is mostly for like casual dating and things like that. But you know, you could have a casual encounter with like Marvin the Martian or something, right? You you definitely could. Yeah. So this is a 2017, it's called Casual Encounters, Herman's Story. Yep, and I'm in the process of opening it. There's some wax on the um, bottle here that I'm trying to break through. Oh, that looked good. Yeah, 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 you got that. Hey, okay, I got it. I now. did not have any any confidence that I would be able to do that. So what, this is a blend, right? This is a blend of a number of grapes. So this is an interesting one. So it's 40% Syrah, yum. 35% Mouvedrum, yum. I know. 19% Grenache, 4% Carignan, and 2% Tanat. Now Tanat is like a weird grape, an unusual one. That was a graceful. I did it. Yeah, thanks. Um, and we are going to aerate this one because Tanat, I mean... These grapes are all pretty heavy, and so we just thought, eh, it couldn't hurt to decant it or to aerate it. But um, Tanat is an interesting grape because you really don't find it too frequently as a single varietal, and I really don't think that you find it too much even in a blend because it's not grown many, many places. No, and as the name says, it adds a certain tannin component. Tannat, T-A-N-N-A-T, Tannat tannin. This is a more expensive wine again. So apologies, we are going to be going into some less expensive wines in future episodes. But this one is a little bit more expensive. It runs about 47 ish dollars. And you got it on sale, right? I got it on sale a little bit on sale. Yeah. It wasn't major on sale. Um, it is 15.6% ABV. So this is going to be a whopper. Wow, look at that color. I know. I think it's representative of the Syrah. It's just so wow. nice. And you know, Tanat uh, also is deep in color. So maybe that 2% is helping with some of the inkiness that we're seeing in this. Oh, yeah, I think so. It originated in southwest France, um, but it is mostly known as a, as a single varietal from Uruguay. Yeah. Or is it Uruguay, Uruguay, however you want to pronounce it. It's from that country. Well, cheers. Cheers, bitch. I'm excited for this wine. I've seen it before and I've never had it. So it is, it is so inky. Oh, it smells so good. It almost smells like a Zin and it's not. It does not taste like a Zin. No, I'm not there yet. I'm still, I'm still enjoying the, the aromas. It has a really nice bouquet. It does seem to smell a little bit more like dried flowers and dried fruits. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I could say that. (laughs) Um, I I could see that there's some, you get more of the dried fruit. It's a little like potpourri-ish. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good one. A potpourri of deliciousness. 
Definitely wow. black, right? Okay, so did it get in your nose a little? I mean, yes, this is my problem is that it's like it's still there, so I can't like really <laughs> breathe in anything new. So what's that? What is that? It like kind of gets into your nose. Like you feel like it in your nose. Yes, like a wasabi kind of thing. I don't know what really does that. I'm sorry. That is crazy. I don't know what causes that. When I was looking at this wine, I read something about black currant, and I can really pick that up. Yeah. The other thing is that it's a little chocolatey in terms of like chocolate cherries, but like almost like a chocolate cherry cordial, a little bit. Like it's hot, like liqueur. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's like how when I, when you finish sipping, it feels like you've just eaten a cherry cordial, a cherry liqueur filled cordial. It's got that heaviness to it. Yeah. Like syrupy almost, but yes. not. Yes. Okay. This is definitely a heavy wine. It's, I'm, uh, I'm glad that we did aerate it a little bit. When in doubt, aerate, right? It's never a bad idea. Mm-mm. Um, the only thing is like, don't aerate. I wouldn't say you need to aerate a wine that has already been open for a while, like maybe for a couple days. Cause I, that could more quickly oxidize and then it could actually just turn the flavors like sour or poor. So the, I can t- get the Tanat at the end. I know it's only 2%. Okay. So let's talk about Tanat. Yeah. Let's talk about what, what this, what this grape does. And this is from California. These are from, this is from all over California. It's not from like one particular zone. Mm-hmm. Tanat is typically in France or Uruguay. And so in France, it's typically known for making deeply colored, robust, full-bodied reds, high alcohol and tannin. The Uruguayan wines tend to be a little softer, a little fleshier, according to Karen McNeil. And so I feel like it's not going to be as like stoic and as, as harsh, maybe, on the tannin side. Tanat possesses some of the highest levels of polyphenols or antioxidants of all red wines. Well, that's crazy. So we're being extremely healthy here. But again, because it has that huge Tanat piece, you know, there are, the common flavors are blackcurrant, plum, licorice, smoke, cardamom, those two types of things. It is also known for that tannic. And I know that you and I have actually had a, a Tanat that is, it was like through the roof. Like it was almost like we were sucking on, dry, on cotton balls. Mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. was so drying and you couldn't even drink it. Like I think we ended up tossing it. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Because it was like you can't taste anything. This certainly has, and I think because it's part of the blend, it has a much better balance. Some oftentimes compare to not to Cabernet Sauvignon because Cabernet Sauvignon is very big. It's very bold. It, especially when you're talking about those Napa cabs, they are very much heavier in tannins and don't really take on that softer approach that mm-hmm. we expect mm-hmm. from the Uruguayan side of things for Tanat. So it's a really interesting grape. It's more difficult to find, but I know I've had this one called Bodega Garzon Tanat. And it's from Uruguay, and it's like 15 bucks or something. And I found it at our local shop. So you might have to look. It The label, I will admit, just looks and sounds like it should be from Spain. It might not be located in the wine aisles where you expect, but just take a peek for it if you're interested. And that one I thought was lovely. Yeah, so... You going to read the back? More about this casual encounters, what we're drinking here by Herman Story. Um, the winemaker is Russell from like F R O M like yep. the word. Um, and he has on here that Herman story was a rancher, logger, swapper, banker, philanthropist, a teller of tales, and my grandfather. So not my grandfather, but right. Russell's grandfather. <laughs> right, right. Um, 
And his website is super interesting. He basically has a letter to everybody when you get on the website. And it says that Herman Story Wines are made, schlepped, peddled, and drunk with friends by me. <laughs> and that it's a basic web design so that he has more time to make wine. And that he releases his wines twice a year in the spring and the fall. The less time he spends writing, the more time he's in the cellar. So not <laughs> too much, but... We couldn't find the, t- the tasting notes on the right. 2017 that we're drinking, but the 2016, which is different because the, the percentage of grapes are vastly different. Totally different, yeah. But it does say that they should dec- you should decant it for 45 minutes. So, so I don't we're know. saying that we aerated it, so maybe that started it, yeah. and then we'll just kind of keep swirling exactly. it as we talk. Okay. Uh, Casual Encounters takes its name from the orgiastic nature of its origins. I mean, let's talk about a casual encounter, exactly. eh? Exactly. Uh, so it <laughs> takes the nature of its origins as a blend of a small co-fermented lots. Oh. Uh, yeah. Giving up control of and embracing game day decisions during the harvest. Casual encounters best captures the lengths Russell will go in setting orthodoxy aside and letting flavor take full stage. So co-fermented lots. That might mean that they put the grapes together, like and then ferment them, and then ferment. Them. But I don't know if that means like different lots from around California of like Syrah, and then different lots from yeah, around California I don't know. of Avedra, and then they co-ferment them because, yeah, they they. I'm sure that they do that because even from like a blending perspective, like from the blending class I just went to, you it's like because the the percentages are so different from year to year you can't make that decision ahead of time yeah this is very interesting i know okay um normally they're fermented separately by a lot and then mixed and then mixed because then you know like what it's going to taste like from each of the lots like how it will develop well this is saying that it was 25 percent whole cluster they used 55 percent new french oak at least on the the vintage before this Mm. one herman story wines began in 2001 he works with 30 top-tier vineyards in over seven distinct growing regions between Santa Barbara and Paso Robles. Oh, so we're talking about Central Coast here. Mm-hmm. Okay. These are no-nonsense, balls-to-the-walls wines that are not for the faint of heart or the pinky raising set. Oh, damn. I feel like he would approve of having a straw in your wine glass then. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right. And okay. apparently you can sell it for six to eight years. This? Yes. All right. So I don't know about the bees on the label. Do you understand that? I don't understand it. The only thing that I could think of are that bees just hang out in like a commune. Everything's very casual there. And they, do they all impregnate the queen? I don't understand how that works either. Or is it because they're like small co-fermented lots? So they're saying the bees are like But don't they return to their own hives? I don't know. I honestly didn't even pay attention or didn't think that this could have been the label to this wine. I only found it because at the store, the bottle had been turned around so you could see the name of it on the back label because it's not on the front. So I actually found some more about the 2017, which we're drinking. Oh, really? So it was aged for 70% in new French oak for 24 months. They made 612 cases. Um, And same thing, decanting for 45 minutes. These tasting notes are really funny. Oh my gosh, what do they say? You never thought you'd get this far, 
but the wood paneled bar with neon lit signs has dissolved into your apartment apartment balcony where she's hungry and waiting. Who's she? Frying up grilled cheese in the kitchen, you realize you're not kids anymore, so you're trying to channel your inner Thomas Keller, chopping fresh rosemary and sage, sizzling bacon, spreading pepper jelly. She hand rolls a cigarette as you split the sandwich. Miles away, thunder rolls. The air turns earthy and sweet. Let it fill the space between you until the rain begins. That's the tasting notes. Those are not tasting notes. That's a story. (laughs) That's a story. It's a Herman story. But no, that's a story. That's not... That doesn't tell me anything about the wine, except maybe, if I could inference from it, there's some smokiness. I mean, that's really... <laughs> oh, I was. I thought we were... That's uh, really uh, it. There's some jelly. Maybe Wait, some savory. It, rosemary, rosemary and sage. I feel like that would be savory, but I'd I don't say, think it's savory. Well, I wouldn't say that it's fruit forward either, though. I believe that I'm picking up more flavor that is perhaps more smoky, more, you know... This is not, like, a bright wine to me. This is a mm-hmm. brooding, dark... Oh, brooding. It so is maybe brooding. that's, like, the storm that they're talking... I don't know. Exactly. No, it is brooding. It is a brooding wine. I like that word. I totally agree. It is not fresh. It is not bright. It is brooding. It is dark. And, like... You know, I am surprised, though, 70% in New French Oak. It's not that oaky to me. Really? It's oaky. But not like overwhelmingly, which I, think I would really expect. Okay. But I don't think that it's it's not unwelcome. It's not it's not too much for you. It's not overwhelming. Right. It, it works. It works with this. Let's talk about aliens. So we we named this Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is the name of a movie, a Steven Spielberg movie I've from nineteen seventy seven. Yeah, it's from nineteen seventy seven. I admit, prior to us getting this wine, because at first we weren't sure if we were gonna be able to get it. But prior to us getting this wine and having the topic to talk about, I hadn't seen it. So I went to my local library. Uh-huh. I'm doing all these plugs for libraries in many of our episodes recently, I think. You're doing a good job with it. Why yeah. Not? I mean, I support it. I just renewed my library card. Anyway, they have this ridiculously large room filled with movies from wow. like wall to wall, floor to ceiling. It's insane. So... I went there, and of course I looked it up first to make sure they had it, and I picked it up, and I was like, I'm going to watch this movie by myself at night in the dark. (laughs) I have a very suggestive mind, I will also put out there. Why would you do that? (laughs) All in the name of DBP, okay? I got to be honest. I will also say I would have watched this with my dad had I been at home, because he and I like to watch older movies together. My husband doesn't really care for old movies. On occasion, he'll watch them, but they have to be like black and white horror films, like The Thing and Frankenstein and Dracula. So this is a little bit... I knew that he wouldn't be interested in watching it. So that's why I went to watch it by myself, and it was all in the name of research for this episode. Jamie, I would have watched it with you. It was like a random thing, and I was in the middle... I was also still sort of doing some work. Also, like I was writing notes for my wine thing. I would have watched it with you, but not because I'd be interested in it. <laughs> I don't... I gotta be honest. I never watched like super science sci-fi like movies. No? Mm-mm. So anyway, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is pretty creepy. But it also is very insightful and makes you ponder like what actually is out there. And, you know, Steven Spielberg, E.T., 
it, obviously he was in a theme. Like he had like a thing going. Um, this movie very much, I think, spoke to a lot of people's fears about them coming in the middle of the night, making weird lights, weird things happening on radars and to airplanes and weird lights, weird sounds, weird everything, and even abductions. Isn't it like like historically significant or something like that? Yeah. I think because it covers like it covers something so I think pivotal at the time and really I, I don't know why and maybe you can speak to this a little bit later why like at that era it was such a hot topic. Oh yeah. There was a lot going on around mm-hmm. the Cold War and stuff. Yeah, but in 2007 uh, Close Encounters was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the U.S. Library of Congress, and it was added to the National Film Registry for preservation. It was also voted the 64th greatest American film of all times, the 31st most thrilling, and the 58th most inspiring. Okay. It's thought-provoking for sure. Um, it is... I was texting my dad while I was watching it, and I was like, oh my god, dad. <laughs> just put this on it's like this is really uncomfortable i think it's a bad idea i think i'm gonna have nightmares yeah but ultimately at the end and i don't want to give it away i will give it away if you want me to but it just kind of comes a little full circle and really makes you question and my dad and i have a few different like we came across we came away with two different ideas of what transpired maybe i need to watch it so it is thought-provoking i will say that But yeah, so that's why we named this episode Close Encounters of the Third Kind, because we're going to talk about some of these weird-ass alien UFO reports. Like all the stuff that you hear about and... Yes. So So, what can you... What can you... What can you tell us, Sarah? Well, first, you know, Flying Saucer. Oh, yeah. Like, where did that name even come from? Was it somebody who was in science? Well... It's been associated, like, forever, as we know, with the UFO sighting. But it was actually coined by the press after a sighting was reported by a pilot, Kenneth mm. Arnold, in 1947. Which is the same year as the one of the most famous UFO incidents, the Roswell incident. Oh, wow. That was 1947? Yeah. Ooh. So, we'll get into the Roswell in a minute. But the flying saucer, so the pilot noticed a bright light reflecting on the side of his plane and he spotted nine aircrafts flying in a v formation towards mount rainier so that's in oregon Mm -hmm. at around 1700 miles per hour he described the movement as this is in quotations a saucer if you skip it over water which was misinterpreted by newspapers to mean the objects were shaped like saucers Thus coining the term. But he was probably talking about the movement. Right. And what it mimicked. Exactly. Okay. So after that, there was a ton of sightings that happened. The largest one is the Roswell one. Uh, This was in the summer of 1947. Um, And this is after the U.S. Army had announced they'd recover remnants of a flying disc from a New Mexico ranch. But then the officials, like, quickly, like, backtracked and said... The debris actually came from a downed weather balloon. I feel like I've heard this even more recently about weird debris, like weather balloon stuff. Anyway. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. Okay, go ahead. So, like... Wait, but so they retracted their statement 
Yeah. But decades later, the Air Force actually admitted they had like made that story up to cover the fact that the wreckage came from an aerial spy device. They retracted the retraction? Yes. What? But then they were saying it's from a spy device. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories about captured aliens and government cover-ups and everything about the Roswell incident. And this is right at the start of the Cold War. And like after this, there's like tons of things that came up of sightings. Okay. Um, What's another, like, what's another good example? There's a lot of different examples. Um, Because I do, I do have a thought because if this was like shortly after a bunch of big military situations and events, one could maybe make the argument and who knows, like, I don't even, I don't know what we have under development. Why would, why would a petty person like me, just a peon, know like what the government is trying to develop and build? Um, Stealth mode operations, if you will, for military advancements. They're not going to want that to be known. So I guess one might be able to make the argument that it maybe is just an actual military plane, but they don't want to say that that's what it is because then the opponents know, you know? Well, so first they said when they were covering up their cover-up, they said, and this was in 1994, that the spy device, this aerial spy device came from a classified project called Project Mogul. And this hmm. device was connected to a string of high-altitude balloons equipped with microphones that were designed to flow over, at the time, the USSR to detect any sound waves at a stealth distance. Oh. So they would monitor the Soviet government's attempts at testing their own atomic bomb. Mm. So they said that it was a covert um, operation, and that's why they covered up the whole thing. Okay. Um, but then there's some eyewitnesses that say that they had they saw alien bodies taken from the site, and that was explained away as fallen parachute test dummies in a follow-up report in 1997. So, I mean, <laughs> that's a little weird. Uh, and then, you know, like, basically the government is saying you can't divulge state secrets in the context of... National security. Sure, that makes so sense. So they, the flying saucer was probably a useful cover story. And people want answers. So yeah. they're like, fine, if this is how they're going to get answers, fine. The other thing is, in support of like the government thing, is that two hours rest west of Roswell is when the first atomic bomb was detonated. So there was ongoing atomic research around the area. There was a lot of stuff going on. So okay. Basically, maybe this was a distraction. I, I don't I don't know. Okay. Or was the UFO from the USSR? That's a whole other conspiracy theory. So there's a lot of stuff. Read into it. Um, you know, it's it's one of the most famous things. But there was other things that happened in that decade. Okay. And in the 50s. Such as? There, in 1947 in Dayton, Ohio, there was like an alien storehouse, potentially. Right. Potentially, there was an investigation based at Ohio's Wright-Patterson Air Force Base about a storehouse of artifacts related to aliens and flying saucers. So that was a rumor, but the Air Force denies it. Um, But apparently, there's a secretive place on the base called Hangar 18 or the Blue Room, which stores a bunch of alien shit. Okay, you have seen the movie Independence Day, right? Yeah. So this almost reminds me, granted, I don't know that they were in Ohio, but it reminds me a little bit of that scene where the president, Bill Pullman, mm-hmm. is like walks in and there's flying saucers, there's bodies of aliens that they've, you know, captured and are 
maybe captured is too strong of a word, but yeah, taken in. And all of the lab work is done, but it's in this secluded place, in this huge, what I would imagine needs to be a big enough hangar. Uh-huh. So, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that was an inspiration for the movie, but that seems kind of creepy. That, yeah, that is creepy. And the blue room, so this is also, there's a whole thing. There's, well, there's a, there's a show, Project Blue Book. I don't know if it's on Netflix. It's, a, it's, on, it's from the History Channel. And it basically goes into like, it's it's a series where it's these people investigating, you know, alien stuff. All no, all yeah, all the UFO conspiracy things that happened during the Cold War. Oh, so, so specifically from that time frame. Yes, continuing to investigate what's going on then. Yes. So basically, it, I think I think it takes place during that time. It first aired last year. Yeah. January 8th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the other ones that's one of, I think this is super creepy. Oh my God. What? Which one? Which one? This happened in Kentucky in 1955. Okay. And they call it the birth of the little Greenman. <gasps> and it's about a farm and this family who lives on this farm. And they say that they had this terrifying siege of all these little, like literally little green men. And this is where the mythology began of little green men. The family like arrives at this police station, like in rural southwestern Kentucky. And they are have this story about terrifying siege of otherworldly beings. And this is like one of the most baffling accounts of an alien close encounter on record. There was actually a, almost a dozen witnesses and the duration of the encounter that they said was several hours. And there was only a few feet between them and the little green men. So <laughs> the family lived in this unpainted three-room house without like any running water or anything. And the UFO lands there and there's these small alien creatures. And they just go on and on about how they were terror-struck. There's actually pictures of what they looked like. Stop it. So one of the family members was getting water from the well when he saw a silvery object that was real bright with an exhaust of all colors of the rainbow. That sounds pretty. I know. What sounds like a dream. Scary. And then he came silently toward the house, passed over the house, stopped in the air, and then dropped straight to the ground. So And then came out of its it was transport three, device. Yep. And then later, the whole family saw this. Three and a half feet tall. It had an oversized head, which was almost perfectly round, arms extended to the ground, hands and talons, and oversized eyes that glowed with a yellowish light. And the body gave off an eerie shimmer in the light of the night's new moon, like like it looked like silver metal. So here's the other thing. They okay. tried to shoot this thing. So they actually had a 20-gauge <laughs> shotgun, and they fired at the little man, and it did a flip scrambled upright and fled into the darkness they also saw a similar creature on the like on a like side window or something and they fired through the window and they said that the little man was impervious to bullets all right i have so many thoughts flowing through my mind right now number one shining like like metal i'm like is this twilight (laughs) are these the vampires in twilight even though they shimmer like diamonds i know i know the other thing, I'm just laughing a little bit. So first of all, before I get to my personal anecdote, there are there are very, very much similarities between what you just described 
about yeah. the appearances as what's depicted in the movie Close Encounters oh, really? of the Third Kind. Now, I wouldn't say like the full combination of things, but those elements are certainly represented. And I think that what we get from that movie and perhaps why it just seems even more real yeah. is because there's variation to the UFOs, to the flying saucers to the whatever yeah in the movie they describe one of them looking like an ice cream cone and there are other ones that look like you know just a little dot just floating around and zipping around you know able to stop Mm -hmm. and hover go from like you know there's no acceleration or deceleration period it's like instantaneous the other thing that i'm laughing about is because i vividly remember being probably it had to be when i was like seven or eight years old maybe a little bit younger Mm mm-hmm and I woke up, I had a nightmare, and I remember my dad coming in, and I told him that I was dreaming about aliens. And I said, somebody, there's going to be an alien that's going to come in and take me. Oh, my God. Like, I just, like, I, that's what I dreamt. And I remember him telling me, <laughs> I don't know, he probably thought it was crazy, but I remember him telling me, he's like, you know what, Jamie, you have nothing to worry about, because if there were aliens, they would be so tiny that they wouldn't be able to do anything to you. You would get up and you would stomp on them. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to touch you or do anything to harm you. And I, then, of course, I go to like imagine like these little itty bitty things that I could crunch with my feet, lifting up my bed collectively. You know, like ants like working together and like carrying my bed out of the room. But anyway, I just remember that happening. I'm like, oh, the little green men. Like maybe it is true. That's some really good parenting. <laughs> You know what? My brother was terrified of aliens. He could barely sleep. He'd be so scared of them. In order to believe or to think about something like that, you have to... Something had to have come into your life to, like, kind of plant that seed. I think you watched some scary movies. Yeah, yeah. Or something... There was, like, some report on something. You know, who knows what. But, yeah. Do you have any other interesting... Yeah, so more recently, there was um, the Battle of L.A., what is there's a bunch. That? I mean, what is there's the a battle ton of, of LA? That sounds so. It sounds like a. It battle. sounds heroic, but like, but it's what not is it? an actual battle. So this is the California actually has the highest number of incidents, sightings, UFO sightings, mm-hmm. which occurred in LA between 2001 and 2015. So apparently, it's a very common place to have sightings. Now, given that's LA, I mean, I feel like there could be a lot of other things that are happening. I agree. That's like where my mind goes. Yeah. But uh, one of the first ones was during the World World War II in 1942. And the attack on Pearl Harbor had just happened. Okay. A few months before. Okay. So there was military units on the California coast and they were instructed to, you know, protect the country. Right? Yes. So on February 25th, an unidentified aircraft was spotted on the radar 120 miles west of LA and then disappeared. So they had this whole air air raid. Sirens were raised. There was a citywide blackout. There was bright um, aircraft searchlights that were like in the sky. And they basically were on the de- defense for an air raid. But then there was like all these reports of unidentified flying objects, foreign aircrafts, and airplane crash landings. And they, like everyone was seeing things. There was mass chaos. There was a deaths of at least five civilians from heart attacks and car accidents oh, shit. during the citywide blackout. Oh my God. And then there was a lot of property damage from shrapnel. Later, it was discovered that the unidentified object was not from an enemy. 
There were several, several contradictory reports from witnesses, and the government and the newspapers at the time stated seeing balloons, aircraft, hovering objects, and other phenomena. And that added to the confusion, but it was and never back identified in why. Like that technology that we're talking about did not exist. Like the hover situation, the hovering alone, I feel like yeah. did not exist. So that alone is like, yeah, no, that couldn't be. But isn't that crazy? Like everyone went crazy, and no one knows what it was. Yeah, that's really alarming. I won't deny it. I won't deny it. Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, just like Google it, look for all these weird things, but. With all of this, I mean, and I think it's been pretty hot topic as of recent. I know there's like a new Netflix thing on. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why, like, again, this topic came about was really because I think it was last year there was that whole like Storm Area 51 situation, but it was also perhaps prompted by sort of the release of information and divulging of essentially government secrets and government work by one of the guys who worked on that stuff. Are you talking about Bob Lazar? I'm talking about Bob Lazar, yeah. Yeah, so, well, first of all... Incredible. Incredible story. It is an incredible story, and that's kind of what brought us to talk about this. But Mm -hmm. first of all, what is Area 51 exactly? Do you know? uh, Vaguely. Area 51 is essentially the area in Nevada where... uh, You can tell me if I'm wrong. Where... They have everything kind of like cordoned off. And it's it's a wide range that you can't go into because there's government work being conducted. Like secretive government work being conducted there. Now I think that many, isn't that where the atomic bomb war stuff also happened? And so it's essentially this area that there's nothing else around so that when they run these tests, theoretically, nothing will be harmed. However, it also has gained notoriety for for housing some more secretive things such as spaceships and alien. Yep, so there's a lot of conspiracy theories. Yeah. It's very secretive. It's 83 miles north of Las Vegas. It's actually a popular tourist tourist destination around the area, um, including the small town of Rachel, which is the, they call this the extraterrestrial highway to get over there. Oh, jeez. Um, but it actually started in 1955 when the CIA established the test facility for a project where they were looking to develop, you know, a strategic aircraft. Okay. So, like, there's Groom Lake, which is basically a salt flat that's used for runways to test a bunch of these aircrafts, aerodynamics. Okay. All that sort of stuff. But there's been a lot of conspiracy theories because of its secretive nature and connection to classified aircraft research. So some of these include the storage, examination, and reverse engineering of crash alien spacecraft, including materials supposedly recovered at Roswell, the study of their occupants, um, and the manufacture of aircraft based on alien technology. Meetings with extraterrestrials. What? Yeah, they think that meetings with extraterrestrials. Well, these are conspiracy theories. Yes, it's like the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. That's not like the Mm -hmm. Oval Office. Okay, okay. The development of weather control, the development of exotic energy weapons for the Strategic (gasps) Defense Initiative of other weapon programs. Okay. The development of time travel and teleportation. Listen, if the government has developed that, please fucking release it because I would really appreciate Uh it. Like pronto. Okay. Sorry. And the development of exotic propulsion systems. I'm not exactly sure what that means. 
Also, activities related to as long as it's not erotic. Well, I mean, this is close encounters of the third kind. (laughs) Casual encounters. Casual, that's right. (laughs) Casual encounters of the third kind. Um, And then a shady one world government, such as Majestic 12. What's that? I don't, you know, like, it's basically an organization that appears in UFO conspiracy theories to be, it's claimed to be the code name of an alleged secret committee of scientists, milliers, and governments, officials. That were formed in 1947 by President Truman to facilitate recovery and investigation of alien spacecraft. The FBI has declared this completely bogus. Um, yeah, but okay. All right. So all of these hypotheses concern underground facilities at, at Groom Lake or something called Papoose Lake. And they're also known as S4. Um, and then also there's claims of a transcontinental underground rail, rail, railroad system, a disappearing airstrip named the Cheshire Airstrip. Uh, like the Cheshire Cat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it only appears in water sprayed onto its camouflage asphalt, which is engineering based on alien technology. That's Area 51. This is like invisible ink. That's, That's Area 51. So the magicians are onto something, huh? Yes. Okay. There's a bunch of security around Area 51. There's guards in white pickup trucks and camouflage trucks, and the guards won't answer questions about who employs them. But according to a lot of sources, they might be employed through like an independent contractor and not actually the government themselves. Um, And then there's signs around the perimeter that says that deadly force is authorized against trespassers. There's a lot of technology, surveillance cameras, motion detectors. Storming it sounds like a dumb idea. I don't know. I personally would not be into storming it because, to me, ignorance is bliss to some effect. I'm kind of okay not knowing everything that's going on. And I say that because it's like maybe it is, in fact, for our own good. You know how parents don't disclose all types of information to you as a child because you're just not ready for it? Well, also, we are in a society where all that we want are answers. We want answers to every flipping thing around us. And if the government doesn't have answers for us, what would they? Why would they disclose anything to us if they don't have the answers? Because to incite mass chaos. I mean, that's basically what's going to happen, right? But anyway, I mean, I am a little curious because so the storm area fifty one came about in July of last year, mm-hmm. twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. and I will say this Joe Rogan podcast with Bob Lazar came out prior to that. So I'm wondering if that instigated anything at all. I even, might have. Even that Project Blue Book first aired at the beginning of 2019. Yeah. So I wonder if it's sort of like this this slow creep, like this slow like introduction or um, these exposés that are coming out that really incited this, this Storm Area 51. Although, apparently, it was originally meant to be just like a joke. Whoever started it, but people actually well, took things seriously because we don't know how to take fucking jokes anymore. It was two million people that responded to a joke proposal. The event was billed as Storm Area Fifty One. They can't stop all of us as an attempt to see them aliens. So <laughs> I want to see so, them aliens. There was an Air Force spokeswoman that knew about the proposal, and then she made a statement to Washington Post saying. That they would discourage anyone from trying to come into an area where we trained American armed forces. 
and that the U.S. Air Force always stands ready to protect America and its assets. So between 1,500 and 3,000 people actually showed up. Thank God it wasn't the millions, so they were interested. Right. And 150 people made the journey to get to area the gates, and five people were actually arrested. I have to say I'm glad that there weren't any actual, like, shootings. Because <laughs> here's the thing. I mean, it is a government. They're, they're there to protect. And so they don't know if you are actually just a dumb, sorry, I'm going to say it, dumb American who's like, oh, I'm going to fucking like, break through the fences. And oh, my God, see, I'm going to get there. See them aliens? To see them aliens, yeah. They don't know if you're that's you or if you're like a spy. I'm sorry. They're going to fucking shoot. They would have every right. There are fucking boundaries in life, people, for a reason. That's why you don't go to the edge of cliffs. Especially when you have a selfie stick and you're not paying attention. Oh my god. And geez. you fall off a fucking like <laughs> mountain and then you die. I there are boundaries for a reason and that's why you need to like follow oh them. Anyway, okay. Sorry, that's so we're, we're glad no one got hurt. We're glad nobody got hurt. We're glad it was only a few people that got arrested. Although I still think that you deserved it. So I anyway. So you keep bringing up Bob Lazar. Can yeah, we can talk we, about this? Like, yes. Who is, who is he? What's this podcast? Oh, my God. So, okay. So he was on episode 1315 of Joe Rogan. It was on June 20th of 2019. Pretty sure Joe Rogan has one of the most popular podcasts. Yeah. That's why I felt the need because I had to search for it again. Google and doesn't he have also a documentary, you said? On that so episode? there is a documentary. And so on this episode with Joe Rogan, who... Joe Rogan just does a... I mean, his episodes are so long. But he just does it's such like a... three hours. Yeah. He does such a great job, I think, of knowing what to ask of each of his guests and being able to speak intelligibly about mm-hmm. whatever the topic is. Because... His guests run the spectrum. Mm-hmm. When we talk about science and we talk about space, I think things get really, really in-depth and very, I'm going to say geeked out. Yeah. Joe Rogan was able to be geeked out, okay? So Bob Lazar was interviewed, but Bob Lazar was joined also by this Jeremy Corbell, who was, I think, the producer of this Netflix uh, special. And it really was kind of speaking to sort of the cover-ups by the government, but what actually is happening. And that, I guess, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this back, and there's so many interesting facts in this podcast and, and information, but mm-hmm. I am, I'll gloss over some of it, but like try to keep like the important pieces here. So Bob Lazar was asked when he was in his 20s, um, he had worked on... I can't remember what he was working on before. Um, I, th- I think it was something in physics, but he gained notoriety because he installed like a jet engine in a Honda. Yeah, and that's how he kind of yeah he was, like they, on the front page of the paper. Exactly, and there was someone who was in like the government work, who kind of was like, "Oh, we got to bring you over." So he got a call, he got an offer for a job, and they didn't really give him much detail. But he was also married, you know, young married guy. And it was one of those, like, covert operations. So it's like, we're going to tell you as much as we need to tell you right now. This is where it is. It's out in Nevada. Um, but according you need to, to live... him, that was not out of the ordinary. No, it wasn't super weird. Yeah. It, like, a lot of, like, government stuff kind of functions that way. And so he was just like, cool, great, awesome, whatever. I'm down. I'm game. So he shows up, and as he tells it, he ends up walking into a hangar, which is why it's interesting about that Ohio hangar. 
that has like nine different aircrafts. Well, okay. So he said he was going to work every day and he was just entering through a regular double door. And then one day he entered through a hangar and it was just that this like spacecraft. And yeah, he says he saw nine, but he's only saw them one time. Yeah. And it was when all the hangars were open. Uh-huh. One day. But it's not like he was seeing, he, he was, he was tasked to work on this one mm-hmm. and this one spacecraft, like at first he, when he saw it, he thought it was potentially like something that the government, the government created and yeah. he was there to help with it. And then quickly figured out that there was technology that we had not made yet. Yes. That didn't exist. And yes. And he was specifically hired on to work on this propulsion system. So basically figure out how they make like reverse technology reverse technology yep exactly and the other weird thing is that his lab partner Mm -hmm. the person that he was working with before died they he thinks he thinks and he thinks he died from an accident by trying to cut the spaceship Okay, so that actually makes sense because there was a spot where I remember he said that it looked like the the metal or whatever it was made out of looked somewhat damaged, like they were trying to like do something to figure out what it was, and the it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah. Completely. So tell us a little bit about the space how he de- how he describes the spacecraft. Okay, so what he I guess is like a five ten person. Um, five foot ten yeah. inches, and so he said that when he walked in, a it was cold. Like the the metal didn't carry any ambient heat. Like it didn't pick up any heat either. It was always cold to the touch. Um, it was almost the way he described it was so cool because he basically said there were no right angles and everything looked like it had been melted. Like it, like you just like heated it up a little bit and it just slightly melted and so everything was slightly curved. There were no mm-hmm. um screens like visit well I'll, I'll get back to that but there were no control panels. There were no buttons, no anything really. It was seemed like it had been designed for like a three and a half foot person. Um, or about half the height, so maybe a three-foot person, until they got into what they equated to be, like, the main room. And in this main room, again, very difficult to tell, like, how anything would have been operated, but there was apparently an archway, and I'm, I won't lie, I'm a little confused about this, but it said that the archway was kind of opaque at first, but then it could be turned, somehow they figured out how to make it transparent. Now, I assume that he doesn't know how to do that because He's not allowed to work. Mm-hmm. He's not allowed to talk to anybody else except his one partner. And they're not allowed to ask questions. And so he was sent to work on the propulsion system and see if he could like reverse engineer it. And so he really wasn't there to look at control panels or how to operate the whole thing. But there was no control panels or buttons or anything. Correct. He says it was basically like you no know, bathroom, like nothing. It was just bare boned. Yep. And, and he also said it wasn't, it's not like grossly large. I mean, granted, I don't know what, how long big a plane is, like from nose to tail. Right. But this was only 52 inch, 52 feet in diameter, which when I think about that, I feel like that sounds really small. Yeah, it does. Um, personally. I agree. Like especially be flying through space, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. So yeah, really very interesting and 
you know, again, he, he kind of said that there were certain things like he really had to limit his focus and he was only working there technically for about six months. Yes. So what happened and why wasn't he there longer? Okay. Well, I think his poor situation is so fucked up and I felt so bad for the guy listening to the podcast because he said so many times like he has migraines, like his health is like not great because this this was in 1982. So this is years later. Yeah. He was kind of getting like disillusioned by the whole thing and he got like really weird because he noticed that there was somebody following him. Or people were following him. And he was like, what is going on? And he was actually afraid he's going to get a, a cap in his ass, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very nervous that someday he was just going to go missing. And so he was very concerned. And so he, I guess, was really disenchanted. And at some point was like, fuck it. And he told some friends. And he goes, hey, do you guys want to see something really cool? Mm-hmm. Let's go. Because he had the flight schedule for all of these tests yeah. for the aircrafts. Or the test for at least his aircraft, the flight schedule, mm-hmm. which is always on a Wednesday night. And so he took a bunch of friends out. They hung out on their cars in the dark. And at one point they had a video camera and they filmed and they were watching the test flights of these aircrafts. Mm-hmm. And it was, I guess there's a video. I wasn't actually, I think I was able to find one of them, but it's very difficult to kind of see mm-hmm. and review. But anyway... They were out there, and I guess, unbeknownst to them, there was a whole crew of military personnel who were watching them. It's crazy. They arrest, they, I think they took them all in for a minute, and then they sent them home. And then he noticed these people tailing him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to, someone's going to kill me. Like, yeah. I'm going to end up in a river or in a... Anyway, he gets called in, finds out also, like, his wife is, like, cheating on him. Like, just a horrible That's situation. Crazy. Yeah. And so he heard from like a lawyer they're like well just start speaking out about it because if you speak out about it they can't kill you basically was the notion and so that's what he did and the crazy part is that he has been haunted by this his whole like Mm -hmm, for the rest of his mm -hmm, life for the last mm -hmm. like 40 years basically almost poor guy he's been battling with this because he's like shit should i have done that in addition to shit should i have done that it's shit should i have talked about it Right, because I think he actually wanted to keep working on this thing. Oh, he was like, I would love to know what's going on right now. And it's that inner turmoil, right, that like you you kind of have to deal with. It's like, what's the best decision? And you go with the information you have at that time. And at Mm -hmm. that time, he was like, I don't want to be snuffed. (laughs) Then he thought his best chances were honestly to make this known. Now, the way that the guy talks about it, he is having a very difficult time at you know, throughout the podcast, kind of talking about certain issues because not to mention that, I mean, he basically has like PTSD from this whole situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's just reliving it and reliving it and reliving it. And I think still concern and about what is going to happen to him in the Mm -hmm. long run. But when he talks about it and then this other guy, Jeremy Corbell, he is investigating and trying to like put out a lot of information about this, uh, via like film. It's very compelling like I can't say that I think he's making shit up. No, I don't. I don't disagree. Um, he actually had co- he actually had comments on the whole Storm Area Fifty One thing. Yeah. And he said that um, he doesn't understand who would start that as a joke. It's a misguided <laughs> idea, and that actually the reverse engineering alien sp- spacecraft technology was 
at a site called S4, which is south of Area 51. And that Area 51 is actually a classified research base, and there's no alien technology located there. And the yeah, but still, place... don't you think it would be captivating to go? Like, I feel like just because it's secretive, that's why people want to go. Sure, and he said the last time someone tried to get in, they, they were shot. So Again, I mean, can't say you don't deserve it. Yeah, but I, I... Yeah, it's very compelling. You know, I don't think he's lying. You know, I think that it's... It's just a really interesting thing, but he's still around and he's still talking about it. So no one like killed him. I know. I just, it's like, is this any life? And I think that's sort of what he was questioning too. But so let me ask you this, because I know that we both listened to this podcast. We have not seen the, the Netflix special and I don't think we've seen Project Blue Book, but after reviewing all this stuff and you know, hearing Bob Lazar, or maybe even before hearing about Bob Lazar's mm-hmm. story, did you believe in aliens? I think to say that they don't exist is, how do we know that? We don't know they don't exist, uh-huh. right? So, sure, I think there's <laughs> probably something out there, but, like, do I believe that little green men will come into and, like, abduct me? Carry your bed away? No. I don't think that's happening. Okay. But, I mean... <laughs> Knock, do you feel compelled to knock on wood right now? I mean, sure, I'll knock on wood because, like, probably I'll wake up in the middle of the night and there'll be a little green marsh staring at me. Like, hey. um, but you know, there's got to be something out there. It's funny when you listen to this podcast; they also talk about how potentially that aliens are just more evolved humans. Like we are oh, shit. so yeah, we are so like technology is just taking over, and like people don't seem to fight it. We just keep going, going, going. Like, no one's satisfied with the status quo. And, like, are aliens just basically, like, they're smaller because people do less because there's more technology. So that's just how they humans will evolve. I think Joe Rogan mentioned, too, he's like, they're finding that there are, like, orangutans who Mm -hmm. now are actually starting to go through the evolution process again. Like, what happened before. They're in the Stone Age or something. Yeah. And... I think that that is just mind-blowing and crazy because it's like, oh shit, like it's it's happening again. So what does that mean for like evolution? Like what does man become next? Do you know what I mean? And we're like starting from the beginning. I don't know, but I'm going to be dead before that. So. Uh, that's, that's true. You know? Yeah, we talked about this last time. Like we just, we don't really want to be around for, I mean, to live forever. But I feel the same way. Granted, when I was little, I liked to ignore the idea, the notion of aliens, but as I get older, there's you cannot. It's ignorant for you to assume that we are the only living creatures in the fucking universe. Yeah. Now, can the living, can the other beings get to this Earth? Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe they can. Maybe they have. Then I go to the whole question, like, well, if we have these aircrafts, where are the beings that were on them? I almost said people, but like, where are they? It's scary. Maybe that's the big thing. It's like the unknown, the uncharted territory is always scary. It doesn't matter if you're talking about like starting a new job or if you're talking about moving to a new place or having a kid or getting married or, or, or anything in life. Uncharted territory is always anxiety producing and very scary. And so when we talk about these other beings, because we can't communicate with them, like you and I can't communicate with them. We can't go there. We can't go visit and be like, okay, I've been here for long enough. I'm ready to go home. And I'm not suggesting that I really want to. But well, that <laughs> and they can like potentially like kill you with like technology that we 
You can't even imagine. Well, maybe I wouldn't feel it then. I don't know. But I think that it's ignorant to believe that we're not, that we are alone. And so it's, it's almost a matter of like, I guess we just need to frame how we think about it because is it this really horrific, nefarious thing like Mars attacks like that movie, or is it something more docile? And it's just like, how do we cohabitate in the universe? Maybe they just want to be friends. Maybe. Why can't we all just get along? Maybe they think we're like pets. If somebody's going to stroke my hair and, like, rub my back all day, I'm in. I don't know. E.T. phone home. (laughs) Again, terrified as a child. It still, like, freaks me out. But I don't, I don't, like, I think that there's somebody, there's something out there. There has to be. Oh, is that, like, time to, are you cheers? I cheered myself. (laughs) You're like, there's something out there. And then you heard a cheers and maybe it was me and an alien. Maybe. Maybe. But what are you thinking of this wine? I'm not entirely sold on it. I feel like it's a little too... Is it too much? Yeah. I think it's kind of too much. I think that the the tannins are great. The body's great. I think the aesthetic to start initially is great. Unfortunately, it's like as we like drink it, I think it's like a little too heavy. It's a little too dark. And I think that I don't like super bright like Beaujolais stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also... This is like too... Too much. This is like, you know what? It's like leathery. Yes, I think that's a good description, but it's also maybe we're getting more of like the leather, tobacco, um, smoke versus and potpourri versus any sort of fresh fruit. It's it's really yeah. overwhelming, I think, because I, it, I just think that the way that it settles in the glass after a while is it's not inviting to me to just sit and sip on it. Now, I will say like it's intense. It's intense for sure. Yeah, and we could certainly, I mean, to not because it's such a big grape, and I think even Syrah, like, they say to pair it with more, like, grilled stuff, barbecue stuff. I think that that might actually make it better, but for I, this being such a, uh, it's, it's a power, it's a power wine. I did have a little piece of chocolate, and it, it how was it? It was good with, it was, it, I think it was better, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, but I agree with you, there's a lot going on, it's really intense, um, it's not like an easy drinking wine. I've never had a wine that gets to me in the nose every time I take a sip. It's weird. Does it still? Uh, it w- it went away for a little bit, but yeah, no, I'm still getting it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you like. It's just like it's getting in my maybe nose. Maybe a thing. It's like what is that? So like if you swirl it, when you swirl a wine in a glass, the reason why I do that is to get so that the alcohol coats the glass, and then you shove your nose in it. And that is meant because you are putting all of the ethanols and esters on the sides of the glass. That's all your smelling component. That's what. That's where you're picking up all of the aromas. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, you're making it more fragrant when you shove your nose in the glass. Now, I think that's also why when you do that, like I get a little tinge in my nose, like inside yeah. my nose when I do that. I think it's because this is a high alcohol wine. So that maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. This know. is really heavy. It's... I think it's too alcoholic too. Damn, guys. I do appreciate it in the context of our episode though, because we got casual close encounters with the third kind. Yeah, if you guys listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, um, let us know what you think. Yeah. You know, we'd like to hear any of your thoughts on UFOs or aliens or anything else that maybe we don't know. 
or your conspiracy theories. That that'd be interesting. <laughs> it would be interesting. <laughs> until All next right. time. Until next time. Cheers. Sleep tight, guys. <laughs> Sweet dreams. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers, cheers from, from the, the girls, girls of DBP. DBP.